what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halvesies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast. I'm Kate Sullivan. Join me as we meet some of the world's most creative and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Chef Seamus Mullen. As a chef, I, I like the idea of peddling the notion of, of hunger. Being hungry, I think, is really good. Not, not being in a state of hunger. Um, they're two very different things, but experiencing that sensation of being hungry is, is really good. Um, and if you think about that the word itself has so many great meanings. So you're hungry for, 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 for information. You're hungry for knowledge. You're, you can be hungry for so many different things. Seamus Mullen is an award-winning chef known for his vast knowledge of Spanish cuisine. Originally from a farm in Vermont, Seamus worked his way through some of the best restaurants in Spain before coming to Manhattan and working at famed New York City restaurant Bocaria. He later struck out on his own with restaurant Tertulia. He has been a finalist on The Next Iron Chef and is now paving a way in the health and wellness space as he talks openly about food and how it affects his health and yours. Seamus suffers from rheumatoid arthritis and has used his diagnosis to explore a healthier way of eating for all of us. Seamus, thank you so much for doing this. Sure. This is a, this is a blast. Um, you know, here we are in Venice, California, outdoors, at this beautiful restaurant called... This is, we're at Justa. Justa, yep. yes. And this is one of your favorite spots. Yeah, this is a local hang for us. We live um, a couple blocks away for the next, I would say... 24 hours and then we're moving. <laughs> so, so it's local for right now. So this is your current favorite neighborhood haunt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what is it about this place that you love so much? Um, well, I mean, if you haven't been here, well, love in the time of COVID or love pre-COVID, um, 
the juice has always been, it's a really, really unique experience, which now has changed slightly because you can't go inside with everyone else. But normally, it's what you walk into this incredible deli counter with just an amazing array of baked goods and cured fish and cured meats. In fact, it's been a long time since I have seen such an amazing selection of foods like you can find at Justa. The cool coastal vibe of Venice, California mixes with a nostalgic Jewish deli feel. Everything is made fresh and carefully locally sourced, from persimmons to Japanese pears to bagels and fresh locks. This is Max Dornbush, the food purchaser. It's uh, kind of like an octopus. It's got all these different tentacles that there's the the different sort of departments all seem so distinct but they're working in tandem to create the food experience what is Um, the food experience it has like the hustle bustle chaos of an east coast style deli but it looks like it could be in europe or maybe in a different part of the world when you walk in, people aren't ready for all the different options yeah, you have. Yeah, I think for most most people, they come inside, and it can be totally overwhelming. And uh, some people, like, love and thrive. Uh, and that Yeah, and they're like, God, this is great. I could have everything. And you see the uh, bread production and the, the pastry corner. There's usually someone, at least for the first half or three quarters of the day, uh, laminating the croissants or... Uh, pounding butter, softening it up. and Everything's made in-house from pastries. Everything. Everything is really laboriously, painstakingly made in-house. <laughs> and there's the, the indescribable um, vibe, that whole, that, that, <laughs> that, 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 like, that secret sauce that you can't really put your finger on that, that makes something. I mean, the fact that you know, we're, there's a stack of firewood next to us and some wood chips that are just sort of lazily stuck into a bag of um, an old feed sack. There's uh, milk crates haphazard strewn about. I don't know. There's something sort of vernacular about it that I really like. It's not stuffy. It's relaxed. It's very California. It just kind of happened. Yeah, it just kind of happened. Yeah. I love that. I like it. Well, I have a confession to make that, you know, you and your girlfriend, Katie, really Mm -hmm. got me through COVID. Oh, no way. (laughs) (laughs) And you know why? Because you had, uh, every night, you would cook these amazing meals Mm -hmm. on Instagram Live. Mm -hmm. And I would join every evening after I put the kids to bed. (laughs) And um, I really, first of all, appreciated what you were doing because I felt like you were bringing a sense of normalcy to what was an incredibly... Weird, weird, weird time. uncertain time. Yeah. Yes, and um, I learned so much. And there's something so meditative about watching someone cook and learning and being part of their creative process. So first of all, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> I'm, I'm so touched that you... Thank you. I'm so touched that you tuned in. Well, and the two of you. First of all, so Katie's hilarious. She's a riot. And yeah. she, um, you know, you are the straight man, right? <laughs> and she is the one who adds the flavor and the yeah. and the comedy. The, well, the thing is that when I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty silly, but when it comes to cooking, I kind of go into this weird zone where I just do. And, and... The, Katie's always giving me a hard time, and her sister always says the same thing. She's like, so what did you put into that? Like, I, or people will say, remember that dish you made? I'm like, I, I have no idea. It's like once I've made it, it's kind of gone out into the ether. I feel like sometimes for me, cooking is a little bit like a Sanskrit painting, you know, where you're <laughs> making a mandala, in, in, not a Sanskrit, a, a sand painting, where yes. you're making a mandala in, 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 in sand, and then the, it's blown away, and once, it's, I once got it's, that. it's gone. I got that from you. You know why? Because Katie would constantly say to you, 
uh, Katie is Seamus's girlfriend would constantly say to you, "Now what was that? No, uh-huh. you have." And she she was really on you for right. the ingredients. Because she understands the importance of, of getting conveying the message. Facts. I've, yeah, and people want to be able to reproduce it. And how much is it? I don't know. It's enough. How long do you put it until it's done? And I. But they're trying to follow your yeah, recipe, I know. Seamus. I'm the you worst know that. when it comes to that. I mean, I have written cookbooks, and I've been forced to actually to really put everything down and make sure that it all makes sense but it's for me it's it's just like a you know I, I guess the way that I I'm happiest when I'm cooking and I cook best is when I'm just sort of in flow and tasting something and adjusting and reacting to it and seeing how ingredients change in the pan and how they change when you add another component to them right so and it's, I think a what you just said is what makes watching cooking so meditative and interesting for someone who's a non-cook mm-hmm. I, I do love to cook but I, a lot of people just watch just to kind of veg out and relax and yeah. to be a part of a creative process um, I, I'm from New England you're from New mm-hmm. England tell me a little bit about where your love of cooking began um, well I grew up in Vermont on a, on a small family farm and my grandmother who lived with us on our property she was an incredible cook she actually she was English and she went to the Cordon Bleu um, in the 1930s. Wow, your grandmother <laughs> so, yeah, my went to the Cordon yeah, Bleu. Yeah, just, I mean, she obviously wasn't going to become a chef. She was from, you know, she was from well-to-do in England. But there was, it was, um, she was very interested in cooking. And, and her family uh, was friends with the Sabatier family, the, the, the famous knife-making family in, in France. And so she went and stayed with them. And, and I think she got a foundation in cooking there. And, and always, she loved food, loved cooking. We... we, we pickled and canned and preserved and we raised our own meat and butchered and made sausages and all of those sorts of things so I I was really around food my whole life Mm -hmm. and I never I never thought of cooking as a skill that one had to aspire to develop it just was like anything else that we did on the farm it was another chore another responsibility that my brother and I had um so I I was always around food but it's funny I, I wanted to mention something that occurred to me in COVID because Katie and I would have this dynamic of and I think it's relevant to the to to how I evolved as a cook. She's always she's always asking me, well, how much did you put of this, or how long does it go? And you know, very very kind of didactic and and, and methodical, which is obviously what you need in a recipe. It was for her um, her sister's birthday. We decided to make a cake for her, and she saw me completely melt down in the kitchen in a way that. <laughs> She'd never seen me. She's like, Wait, this, the kitchen's your domain. And baking is something that's so challenging for me. Mm. Like pastry. Because it requires precision. precision. Yeah. And, I, and it occurred to me that baking is a lot like being a classical musician. And savory cooking is a lot like being a jazz musician. Wow, what a great comparison. And you kind of have to, like, you have to understand the rules. Like when you're, when you're, to be a wonderful jazz musician, you know, an accomplished jazz musician, you have to really understand technique. But then, in a way, it's almost like, um, like, like Jackson Pollock. He was an incredible technical painter. And if you look at his, the early stuff that he did, he could replicate Velasquez's to the, to the perfect replicative painter. But then he forgot all of that and right. threw it and all let out. let go. Let go of it. Right. And Picasso did the same thing to kind of just to, to use that technique, but then to really explore the creative component of who they were as artists and I think in a lot of ways cooking is a lot like that savory cooking is a lot like that you kind of have to you have to have a foundation and understand the principles and then once you once those become innate then you forget them and you dive in and you improvise you can't take the Goldberg variations and improvise it's, this is how Johann Sebastian Bach composed the, the Goldberg variations and this is how you play it and you can obviously you every every musician is going to bring their own touch 
and perspective, but ultimately it's, it's pretty regimented. Yeah, isn't that interesting like the, just the spectrum of the analytical mind, uh, the fact driven yeah. following a rule book versus letting go and mm-hmm. letting your creativity take over. You know, which one are you and maybe yeah. as people are listening right now they're thinking to themselves, maybe that's why I like baking. Yeah, Because exactly. it is predictable if I follow the rules. And there isn't there isn't a sense of, I think it's very difficult for some people who are, are more, have a greater challenge when it comes to letting go um to understand that it's okay to fail and there is not there isn't really a failure if a dish if you're just cooking and a dish doesn't come out the way you would have hoped it to and i can tell you that i've made more bad dish less maybe not more bad dishes but i've had made lots of mistakes in the kitchen give yourself some credit yeah (laughs) but i've made a lot of mistakes in the kitchen i've learned from them you know i've learned from them i I, i've learned that if you oversalt something that also has a salted component to it it's going to taste extremely salty and you can always add more too but you can't take away um so I, I, I've learned things that have become really important lessons as I've matured as a, as a cook. Um, but I think for a lot of folks who don't, and, and that's quite easy for me because I think early on, having grown up around cooking, to bring this back to my, my childhood in cooking, I, I had those skills, I, I had the fundamental skills already kind of learned. In the same way, when you learn a language by immersion, it's very different from sitting down and studying grammar and understanding the difference between the preterite and the past and the subjective right. and right. you know the, the subjunctive and, and 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 the imperfect or whatever it might be. If you're learning it intuitively, you don't you don't break it down, and so you're not as uh, the mistakes don't don't feel like mistakes. They just feel like um, part of the like, process. Yeah, course correction. Yeah, exactly. So this is fascinating. So you really kind of grew up around food and, and food at a really detailed level where you had a grandmother who was really, you know, sort of classically trained. How did you get from there and this love of cooking to being so well known for Spanish cooking? And then, of course, working at Boqueria. Am I saying it right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, I opened Boqueria in 2006. Um, I... I, I, I which is not surprising based on what I've told you already, but I'm, I, I learn really well through immersion. Okay. I um, use the analogy of language because I, I do speak Spanish fluently. And oh, wonderful! Look at that! Oh That's wow! Gorgeous. Thank you so much. What are we eating, Seamus? So this is uh, some pastrami gravlax. Uh, thank you, and a soft scramble of eggs with labna. With this ciabatta bread. That's yeah. amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was really good at language, but not studying language. I did really poorly in class, um, and th- that's something that I've that's interesting. yeah, it's something I've struggled with my my whole life, and I'm getting better at now. But for a long time, I, I was very resistant to things that that um, didn't come to me super super easily. But speaking language, learning orally, um, really did come to me quite easily. And in high school, I um, I had a very supportive Spanish teacher who encouraged me to do an exchange program in Spain my senior ah, year in high school. there's and the kinda, immersive, yeah. yes. And that's where it really started. I mean, I, so it started I, in high school? Yeah, in high school. Um, I lived with a family in northern Spain. Uh, at this point, were you in high school in New England? Yeah, I was in high school. I was at a boarding school in Massachusetts. Okay, and yeah. then you went to... To Spain for my senior year. In the, the entire senior year of high yeah. school? Wow, what a fascinating yeah, experience. Yeah, I got to live with a family in northern Spain. Um, what town? The city's called Burgos. Um, and uh, it's in Castilla León, north of um, north of Madrid. You know that my host family was really, really as many most folks are in Spain are extremely proud of their food. So I got to to cook with things that I'd never 
ever seen before, let alone um, tasted before. And and that was a really remarkable experience because I got to you know I got to try all sorts of incredible things. I, I I I was interested in cooking, so my host mother really kind of took me under her wing, yeah. and she loved that I her her three kids hated cooking, <laughs> and all they wanted to do was eat, you know go out and eat McDonald's. You were the adopted son. Yeah, literally. So I I spent more time with my host parents than I did with my my host siblings. What, um, I, what I found fascinating from watching you cook this summer mm-hmm. is. Um, emphasis on seafood in many different ways mm-hmm. like it it, it it being from new england yeah. obviously seafood is something i grew up with but it the Span- the spanish take it to a whole new level they mm-hmm. take it to a whole new level and they really um it's a lot of seafood that we've never heard of right mm-hmm. and that we've never cooked with so was that some of did you start to learn that when you were a senior in high school yeah i mean i had never conceived of eating octopus or prawns with the head and eyes on sardines you know, sardines anchovies all of these things that like most kids i probably had an an ooh factor you know reaction to it like that's gross <laughs> i need that an octopus and squid and it's it's their their ingredients are so quotidian in spanish that it's very in spain that you you the the idea that that you would be repulsed or grossed out by eating sea urchin or an oyster or octopus or squid or gooseneck barnacles is just so odd um and uh and so i i kind of had to get over that initial gag reflex and then once i did and i think because i was so open to just well part of it's because i think half the time i didn't know what i was eating but um but but then i think because i was so open to just experiencing new things it really um it kind of it, it it just became this launching pad to where now i mean there's very little real food that i would I would say that doesn't interest me. How would you describe your cooking right now and what you're really passionate about cooking? Is it still very much in the family of Spanish cuisine? Mm, probably not so much in the family of Spanish cuisine in that I love a lot of ingredients that you wouldn't find in Spain. I mean, it sounds like it sounds a little trite, but I'm just a very, I'm a very much an ingredient product-based cook. I believe in eating really, really good product as close to the natural source and natural form as possible. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute, but first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to the table. 
yeah, a really good piece of fish with some sea salt and, and extra virgin olive oil kissed on the grill, maybe a hint of smoke, like that's all you need. It's yeah. not, you don't need to, you don't need to, to go too far and you end up oftentimes rather be, than being additive when you start to pile on lots of ingredients, it starts to take away from the actual value of the, of the dish. You went through a health journey, right? Mm-hmm. Can you explain that and can you share what you learned from that journey? You got a couple hours? <laughs> Part of the, the irony of being a chef is that we tend to be really good at taking care of other people, but focus too little on taking care of ourselves. Um, and it's part, a, a large part of that is um, the, just the schedule and the hours. You work really crazy hours. You generally are working when other people are either eating or, or, or you know, having fun, and you're not. So... It's, it becomes really difficult to eat with regularity. I, I, for years and years and years when I was a chef, I was never hungry, but I was never not hungry. I was kind mm. of always in the state of just putting some food in my mouth all the time, but yeah. never actually eating a meal. Mm. And there's an inherent excess that comes with that. Sure. Um, and if you're, if you're putting a lot of stuff that is inflammatory into your body your body will become inflamed over time. Add is that it. what happened to you? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of... I, I ended up getting diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, um, rheumatoid arthritis, and I had really severe flare-ups and gained a lot of weight, and I was on a lot of medication. But ultimately, I mean, I, I've i learned a lot about, about um, chronic illness and, and inflammation and autoimmune dis- disease, and I feel that, you know, my position is that it's really often is a byproduct of a, of a variety of factors, so it's impossible to pinpoint it and say, well, this is what caused this. But rather, um, the, these, these are diseases, they're lifestyle diseases, they're modern diseases. So it's, it's ultimately the, the tipping point for, for a lot of folks living with autoimmune dysfunction is their lifestyle and lifestyle choices. Those are, those are things that can, can, can take a problem and make it catastrophic. Um, so for me, I, you know, I, was, I wasn't feeling well. I was inflamed all the time. My health was was declining and declining but at the same time I was pushing ahead forging ahead cooking you know 70 80 90 hours a week sometimes cooking in New York is no joke no it was really tough and um and my body just kind of started to break down as it will I mean it's just like running your car with without with an oil leak and or, or if you have you know the the engine check engine light goes on and rather than addressing the problem you just keep putting a band-aid over it and pretending that it's you know it's going to go away and you can go eventually but at some point, it's going to it's going to all break down. So, how did you change what you were eating? What what specifically did you do to alter your course? I mean, it's it's more than anything. The most important thing that I did was I, I changed my relationship with food. So I can tell you what the, the 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 content of my changes were, but really, it's the context that's much more important. You know, I I started eating meals, two meals a day, lunch and dinner. I I tried to finish eating by seven o'clock at night so my body actually had, a, had an opportunity to rest rather than digesting while I was sleeping yeah. and I think that's something that's really hard you know as, as a chef I, I like the idea of peddling the notion of, of hunger being hungry I think is really good not not being in a state of hunger um, they're two very different things but experiencing that sensation of being hungry is is really good mm-hmm. um, and if you think about that the word itself has so many great meanings so you're hungry for for, for for information, you're hungry for knowledge, you're, you can be hungry for so many different things, um, rather than being in a chronic state of hunger, which is not good. But the idea of actually being hungry uh, helps you anticipate your next meal. It also allows your body um, 
an opportunity to recover, to go through what's called autophagy, where you clear out all of the the the, uh, the dead cell material that, as your body is constantly regenerating, your cells are constantly regenerating. That um, you know allows your liver to, to to rest and not constantly be in a state of of, of overdrive. Um, and it also is a nice balance of it's sort of that interesting ba- pendulum swing of being sated and being hungry. Um, and and oftentimes we 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 think that we kind of we're so worried about not being in a state of, hu- of being hungry, which, if you really think about it, is it's a primordial throwback to when food was scarce. We, we would consume, it, yeah. yeah, we had to hoard it. And we had to consume it while it was available, um, and that's kind of that's baked into our DNA. When we see food, we feel like we have to eat it because we don't know when the next meal is going to come. But the the the, the, the we don't want it to go to waste. No, we, well, we don't, yeah, we don't want it to go to waste, and that's sort of the modern uh, uh, mentality. But, you know, from, from just an uh, uh, evolutionary sur- perspective of survival, you, you want to make sure that you have enough, you have enough calories to, to continue to survive because you have no idea where your next, next meal, right. you, you, might, you might end up in a, a drought or there might not be anything available or you might not be able to go hunting or find anything when you're... When you're when a fear you're, mentality. Yeah, yeah. so we, we consume it and I think that, that that's still kind of baked into our behavior in a lot of ways. Um, and and the, the difference is that now we live in an environment where, you know, there's there are calories at every corner. And generally speaking, the ones that are most accessible are... are Not of, good. No, they're like yeah. the least nutrient value and yeah. most efficient. So being much more intentional about what you're eating and how you're eating, when you're eating, yeah. and that you're eating. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. I love you bringing up this concept of how hunger means so many different things to different mm-hmm. people. And it has a lot of positive connotations because hunger motivates us, right? You know, mm-hmm. whether it's a career, whether it's a career as a chef, uh, you know, you've written cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- where you are now, how has success, or the co- definition of success evolved for you? And what does it mean right now? Success means so many different things, but being in a place where you feel good about what you're doing and where you're going, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a, a, I think, a very good indicator of, of, of success. The direction of your life. Yeah. yeah. Because I think um, just like health, it's, it's not, success is not a destination. You don't, you don't arrive at success and say, okay, I mean, there's, a, there's a, an amazing interview with, with John D. Rockefeller, where I forget who it was, but someone asked him, how much money is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And there's there's amazing things about that. There's also <laughs> things about that that are that are that are kind of um, the indicative it's of enough. it's never enough. Never enough. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks think about um, success or health or weight loss or whatever it might be that, as this 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 goal that they achieve. And once they've achieved, and it's like, okay, now I need to set some other goal. But in reality health is about maintenance it's about every day every moment um and and success i think is the same thing you're gonna there are peaks and valleys um you know feeling like you are on a path that you feel good about whether that's financial um accomplishments or that's tied to to some sort of other professional accomplishments um that's obviously a key indicator of success, but I think that the people that I that I really admire who are most successful are folks that are that are really good with where they are right now, and are going to be even better with where they're going. Mm, I love that. That's, and that's great. That's something I think I would like to to strive for. Yeah, to get in that place. Yeah. 
what you know everyone on this program has a vision beyond themselves so they've created something mm-hmm. you know they're a chef they're an author they're a founder they're mm-hmm. a CEO but they have a vision beyond themselves of what they want to do with that and I get the feeling that you fall into that category mm-hmm. what do you want to do with your cooking with all of your talent um, as you give it to the world I mean obviously you, you get a lot personally from cooking I get yeah. that sense yeah, yeah. but what is your vision beyond I, you know, I think the thing that I would like most to be able to to sort of, when I put my head down on the pill at the end of the night and the day is over and I'm thinking about tomorrow, is try to leave something behind that empowers other people to help them on their path. And it, that can sound, maybe that sounds a little sort of like a Hallmark card, but the idea of being able to empower someone else with some new tools to cook and to be able to share that with someone else. And there's, there's something about health that's really contagious that, you know, we, we think of particularly the world we're in right now where we're, we're very concerned with contagion and we focus so much on the negative component of contagion, this idea that one bad thing begets another bad thing without remembering that so often the opposite is true, that one good thing begets many other good things, that there's a really, um, there's an exponential uh, growth in, in, in good behavior in many ways. You know, I'd like to be able to, as much as I can, um, share the things that I've learned or the skills that perhaps come to me more naturally than they might come to others um, and hopefully impart those on others so that they can become whether it's better cooks or a better understanding of how to care for themselves. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I feel like health and a positive relationship with the food is something as humans, is a, it's, a, it's a natural given right. And uh, I would love to see these really amazing growing trends in health and wellness and, and, and um, consciousness um, to become more democratized because I think that everyone should have access to information is... Information is, 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 is the tipping point for so many things. And if, if information can be democratized and shared, then that can open the pathway for, for resources. Um, but without, you know, by, by withholding information or not sharing information or, or disseminating misinformation, then we make it very challenging to change uh, the landscape. We live in a world that, that right now is facing a variety of crises. Um, Many existential crises from 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 <laughs> social going yeah, that, yeah from social constructs to to environmental impending disasters to uh, a health crisis that that we've been, that has been growing rapidly over the past 50, 60 years in this country and that we've now exported in terms of behavior worldwide. So I I, I hope that if we can mine some wisdom from tradition. Like great things happen when people sit down to, at a meal, you know, sit down for a meal together. We know this. I mean, there's there's there, there's empirical data that shows that uh, social behavior changes when we as humans sit as a family or friends and share a meal. Absolutely. And Amen. that's you know that's something that is as old as as as, as human time, existence, right? but we've changed it. Uh, unfortunately, not intentionally. And I don't think no. there's been some some. There, it's not like there's a there's like a group of nihilists out there pulling pulling the strings and, away yeah from their meals. no but it's just it's, yeah, there's it's too life. many it's life and there's too many there's there, there there are too many distractions that pull us away that we don't we don't understand the carving time out and i mean one of the things that that i try to do and and i don't always do it but i'm pretty good at it. you know the calendar the modern calendar is an incredible invention blocking time out and shared calendars these are all amazing tools 
And I try to use as, as best as I can to block out periods for exercise and for meals in my calendar. In sitting down to a meal and actually yeah. having a conversation and using that time to sort of recharge and mm-hmm. restore, I feel like, you know, so often we think of it as just like quickly eat, but like that, the, you know, kids are, are, are with all their devices aren't learning how to talk to each other now. Yeah. You know, it's like this is going to be, you know, a, a crisis yeah. for the next generation of just having a, like what we're doing. We're yeah. sitting down and we're asking each other questions and chatting like that is a skill that is going to be a lost art if we yeah. don't do something about it. Yeah, it's, and you're right. It's a skill. It's a practice skill. That's yes. a great observation. You, it, the, the, the less you do it, the, the worse you get at doing it. I mean, I, I don't, exactly. I just, I, when I sit down, I always try to put my phone upside down, but then I sometimes have to like put something on top of my <laughs> phone so I don't even see, see it. it. Yes. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, it, you know, that's, that's a good reminder of um, disconnecting for a moment, actually engage at at the table in a meal and what what happens when you I mean we've been eating breakfast very slowly as we're talking the right. fact that we're talking forces us to eat slowly which does a couple of things you know it it allows the brain an opportunity to detect satiety yep. because if you're just oftentimes we eat more we're than shoveling we, yeah, it we're in, shoveling right. in and before the brain gets the message that you've had enough you know the tummy is still like oh I need more I need more I need more and you keep shoveling it in, but if you um, if you actually slow down and you force yourself to slow down, and conversation is a great way because if you're talking, it's pretty hard to f- shovel food in your mouth while talking. Um, and the other thing that happens is that, as you said, it, it helps you be a little bit more intentional. Yes, yes. Well, I will tell you, um, just listening to you talk, I, I can tell how much thought you put in to everything you do. You know, whether it's cooking, whether oh, I don't it's, know about that. Sometimes, yeah, it's your... sometimes I really should think more. <laughs> Well, I can tell a lot of intentionality in in what you do. And I think that, you know, when it comes to mind, body, spirit, when it comes to uh, what we eat and how it affects our lives, how we feel, Mm -hmm. um, I think we all should put more thought into it. We should all put a little bit more intention into it um, to live a better life. Yeah, I think being, being, being mindful of what you're doing, whether it's smiling to someone that you pass on the street or remembering to drink enough water you know they're they're all actions that um pay 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 dividends in spades yeah um but it's hard sometimes because you we we live in a a world where we really want instant gratification we want instant response for for um the work that we put in and unfortunately it doesn't work that way you know nature is a great example you don't put a a seed in the ground and the next day have fruit right patience is a virtue yeah and it's something that we we um if you if you can cultivate using the term of of gardening like if you can cultivate a habit of that patience you know tomorrow you may not have tomatoes but guess what you know the spring peas are popping up yeah you'll be getting you'll be getting dividend payoffs every day (laughs) it's important isn't it um when you think about where you'd like your career to go Mm -hmm. what does that look like I mean, I'm I'm starting. I'm working on a startup right now. That, um, from just a nuts and bolts standpoint, I'm really excited about because I, I see the opportunity to bring really good quality food to a large demographic that I think do, deserves access to good quality food. Um, so ultimately, you know, I would love to see 
from a professional standpoint, I want to grow into that. I want to grow into having, um, you know, having as much impact as I can on on helping folks embrace a healthier relationship with food. You're known for your love of Spanish cuisine. Mm-hmm. Is there another cuisine you'd love to kind of dabble in or one that you're really kind of curious about? Mm. Food and cuisines and like parsing them out by culture is something I've actually become less interested in oh. over time because it's um, it's funny. We are so tribal as humans. Yes. And then we have these arbitrary lines that are drawn across a map. And this is Mexican food and this is Guatemalan food. And this is and, and the reality is and this is, you know, Castilian Spanish and this is Catalan and this is French and this is Provencal French. I think we, we unfortunately we're living in a moment that is a very divisive moment and that really puts a lot of emphasis on this idea of borders and and um, and separateness. Se- yeah. Physical boundaries. And the reality is, one, as humans, we are all the same. I mean, genetically, we are there. There is zero difference in our genes from from one side of the globe to the other. Homo sapiens sapiens are all the same. And we may have slightly different behaviors regionally that are in, in, that are influenced by more than anything by geography. So our food is going to be in, influenced by geography. But that landscape is constantly shifting as we as humans have been moving around the planet for 250,000 years or more. Um, and so our foods are constantly shifting. To think that there is one cuisine that's different from another is, is I think, is a little myopic. To think that you can, you know, couldn't that, cook Italian food without tomatoes, but they're but tomatoes are from the Americas. But that what you're saying is such an American ideal, right? It's mm. the idea that we take the best from different aspects, different cultures, and we create something new. Yeah. I mean, you, you, your what you're saying, your vision is a very. Uh, American in nature and it's a, a very specific point of view you know you ask someone who uh, a Frenchman who is teaching at the Cordon sure, Bleu sure. and they would say something different yeah no I agree I mean I think that that's I, listen over the, I've spent the past how old am I now 20 so 40, I've, the past 20 years no 30 years <laughs> going to Spain yeah. and cooking Spanish food and the number of times that I've had Spaniards tell me oh this tortilla española is not traditional and, and almost I, offended a little yeah yeah, yeah. No, there, there's a sense of cultural pride like this is how you do it and and the reality is like no this is how you you in your bubble do it right but um, you have to understand that it's like that whole idea of make America great again. Like you can't, you want to get transported to some moment, specific moment in time that has a beginning and an end point. It's I, an evolution. Yeah, yeah. It's constantly changing. The food is constantly changing. And I certainly understand there's like a, there's a, there's a level of familiarity. And yes, maybe it is a slightly American perspective, but I don't think of it as taking the best of one thing or the other and culturally mining um, one, one cuisine or another and to create something that's some fusion mashup. But rather that I think it's important to understand that what is Mexican food today, tomorrow is going to look very different from what it is today. Yes. And it's going around the world and just look at all of the cuisines as we've kind of compartmentalized them. And we think about Korean food and how important um, gochujang is and, and, and peppers and, 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 and nightshades in, in, in Korean food, the part of the banchan that you have at the beginning of every meal. So many of those ingredients came from the Americas and were very new to, to Korean cuisine. The same Mexican food, Mexican tradition is highly influenced by Spanish cuisine and highly influenced by by Mediterranean cuisine. 
olives, olive oil, all the things that you find. I mean, and, and, and it goes in every direction. Um, Italian food, Spanish food, French food, you name it. The ingredients have, have, have crossed the globe and traditions and techniques have crossed the globe, time eternal. And the world we live in now, it's certainly much more accelerated than ever before because we live in a world in which information is shared and products are shared internationally at a rate that is exponentially faster than, than it was even 10 years ago and certainly more than it was 300 years ago. Um, so I, I'm interested in where is food going. You know, I'm interested in understanding and, and I and being I'm, a part of it. I'm being a part of it. Yeah. And like I think there's grandmotherly recipes I think are wonderful. You know, keeping I have I have a recipe card box with my grandmother's recipes that I absolutely love. If your grandmother was British, <laughs> yeah. is she still alive? No, she passed she away a few years ago. But no no, she was she had a long and full and healthy life. Did she did she make a, a killer popover? She didn't do popovers. I wish that she had. Oh, I love but a popover. Toad in the hole was her big thing. Toad in the hole. Yeah. And Yorkshire pudding. Yorkshire pudding. That is really to me. My my grandmother. My mother is English as well, and and mm. that is what that flavor. Oh, yeah. with some lamb on a Sunday mm-hmm. with some mashed shepherd's potato. pie. Yeah, These are all things that I that I grew up with definitely, and I think it's curious to look at where we're going, and I love that idea of preserving those those traditions and understanding that those traditions were also evolutions in and of themselves they weren't like they carved weren't static into, no they yeah. weren't carved into the tableaus by Moses I mean it's not like this is like something that's descended from it's all from, an evolution yeah, yeah. everything everything is yeah, story even, myth even the classics yep. right even the classics yeah there are so many lessons to be learned from other people's experiences whether they're the experiences of people that grow up in, in Vietnam cooking food and the language that they've been cooking food for time eternal and how that's evolved or whether it is whether it's Japanese cuisine or whatever it might be I mean I love I love experiencing food because to me food really is the language of culture yes you know when you go to another country the, the best way to to make friends is to ask the first taxi driver you 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 know hey what's where your favorite dish and where should I eat <laughs> yes. and everyone will have an opinion I'm so with you I, everyone will have an opinion I'm There's, so with you well that's we, the whole premise of to dine for is that people's favorite restaurants yeah. says something about them it explains where they're living right then or maybe just something they love in when people are passionate about food and talking about the place that they mm-hmm. love they come alive and you certainly have been wonderful for this breakfast. Thank you so much for yeah, joining my me. Pleasure. Cheers to you and Cheers. all of your success. Thanks so much. Thanks for I, having me. I really um, appreciate your time and my your pleasure. Yeah, intentionality of thought. So thank you, Seamus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.